0: Hello and welcome to the podcast for the August 2009 issue of The Lancet Oncology. I'm Richard Lane and this month I'm joined by Rob Briley to discuss the highlights from the issue. Welcome Rob. Hi Richard. Rob, let's start with a phase 2 study and this is looking at the possibility of surgery for patients with locally advanced lung cancer. What's the thinking behind this study?
1: Conventionally, stage 3 lung cancer is divided into two sub-stages. Stage 3a, which is potentially operable and stage 3b, which isn't. Patients with stage 3b non-small cell lung cancer are normally therefore managed with definitive radiotherapy, chemotherapy or both. However, improvements in surgical techniques and anaesthesia now mean that there is a subset of patients with stage 3b disease who could technically be operated on with the goal of complete resection of the tumour.
0: Briefly outline the methodology of this study. In this
1: phase 2 trial, Roger Stupp and colleagues took a group of selected patients and treated them sequentially with chemotherapy, radiotherapy and then surgery.
0: And the results, Rob, please walk us carefully through uh, specifically the survival rates found in the study.
1: Of the original 46 patients enrolled in this trial, 35 made it through the chemotherapy and radiotherapy stages without signs of progression of disease and were therefore eligible for surgery. Complete resection was achieved in 27 of the patients, incomplete resection in 3 and 5 were unresectable. At 12 months, event-free survival, which was the study's primary endpoint, was 54%.
0: And what do the authors conclude from this study, and and what are the next steps, do you think?
1: The authors conclude that such treatment is feasible in selected patients with stage 3 disease. The survival rates compare favourably with historical data from trials in which combined treatment was applied to patients with advanced stage 3a disease. One should note, however, that although the toxicities in the chemotherapy and radiotherapy phases of the treatment regimen were pretty much as anticipated, the almost 6% perioperative mortality seen here was perhaps higher than expected and could have been increased because of the intensive treatment pre-surgery.
0: Next, let's look at the study which is assessing sonitinib for the treatment of renal cell carcinoma. I guess first question here is this drug is already a first-line treatment for this type of cancer, so so what's the specific aim of this study?
1: Yeah, that's right, but the eligibility criteria for clinical trials are often quite restrictive, with many patients, particularly those with a poorer prognosis, unable to receive promising new drugs. This particular study is an expanded access program which provided sinicinib to patients with renal cell cancer who would otherwise be ineligible for trials, or from countries where the drug had not yet received regulatory approval. While giving hope to patients, the trial also affords us an opportunity to assess the drug's efficacy in subgroups of patients with poor prognosis and also monitor for adverse events in a more real-world setting. In this study, Martin Gore and colleagues gave synitinib to almost 4,500 patients. The efficacy results were consistent with those seen in the main randomised trials of the drug, and the safety profile was also similar.
0: And what are the conclusions and implications of, of this study, Rob?
1: The authors conclude that the drug is safe and effective in a broad population of patients with metastatic renal cell carcinoma. Further, there are hints that subgroups of patients who might be expected to have lower tolerance to therapy are also likely to benefit from the drug. For instance, the data from this trial suggests that age alone should not be a deterrent from giving sunitinib to a patient, and results from the group of patients with brain metastases suggest that the patients might benefit from the drug, although to a lesser extent than the general population
0: let's briefly discuss the special report. This is highlighting how clinical research in the United Kingdom appears to be stifled by excessive paperwork. This sounds familiar. What's going on here?
1: Well, before the European Clinical Trials Directive was introduced in 2004, researchers wanting to start a clinical trial in the UK had to apply for local ethics approval and also to the MHRA. The introduction of the European regulation seems to have brought with it a raft of extra red tape For instance, once the detailed protocol of the trial has been drawn up, a 28-page form must be filled in and a dossier put together documenting the stability and toxicology of any agent being tested. If the agent is new, it must have further documentation from independent laboratories. An application to the National Research Ethics Service is also required, involving a 50-page form with more than 100 questions. Trials involving radioactivity, even if simply radionuclides for imaging trials, for instance, must submit answers to another 40 questions to a radioactive substances committee. Legal sponsors have to be sought and are likely to need further documentation to be drawn up. The list seems to go on. As a result, massive delays can ensue. One researcher told us of an imaging trial that they had secured funding for in 2004, yet did not receive final approval for until 2009. Such delays can hinder cutting-edge clinical research and could discourage investment in the UK, not only doing a disservice to researchers in their respective fields, but also to patients who would be denied access to new treatments. Many of the researchers approached for this piece felt that the UK was interpreting the rules too stringently. Other European countries, also bound by the same set of regulations, were felt to be interpreting the laws much more flexibly.
0: And Rob, are there any signs of improvements in the near future here, or is this as depressing as it sounds?
1: Well, the MHRA told us that to blame over-regulation for delays was perhaps oversimplifying the problem and that it's critical to identify specific bottlenecks to research and to systematically fix them. While efforts are being made to streamline these procedures, and a conference is taking place in Oxford later this year, for instance, to discuss these issues, it is clear that there's a substantial amount of work still to be done.
0: Many thanks indeed, Rob, and those are some of the highlights from the August issue of The Lancet Oncology. Many thanks for listening. We'll see you next month.